John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 408.MT2221, certificate number 42631, Emperor Norton. At the peremptory request and desire of the large majority of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton, for the past nine years and ten months of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself Emperor of these United States. This is our last show of the auspicious year, 2022. Was it auspicious? No. Do you, do you think the number, the number was auspicious because it had a lot of twos in it? I don't really know about the auspiciousness of numbers, so I can't say. I'm sure there's someone who, someone with a more zodiacal mind than I uh, will tell me. Someone with a better command of woo. 246. Two, zero, two plus zero, as we know from math. Yeah, it's what two. is two, what is two plus zero? It's two. Let me hold on. I'm a lot gonna, of people think it's zero. I'm going to open the calculator app. And then plus two plus two, that's six. Well done. Thank you. Um, so our, our last uh, last show of 2002, and as uh, as close listeners to the Omnibus Project will know, we are. This is the last of uh, our two shows a week schedule, and starting in 2002, we're switching to one show a week. Our five-year death march ends in 2023. We have done the work. Uh, we've done 10 years of work in five short years. We were hoping that people would listen to the show once a week and that we could then stop and the show could continue. But many people have actually been listening to the show in real time, unfortunately. Yeah. Which means we're going to have to keep recording. As you have quite intelligently pointed out, you can listen to the show as often as you like. Oh, yeah. And you could be just like one year in. To you, the show could come out hourly if, yeah. you, if you're complaining about frequency. They would not be new entries. You could remix old ones. How far are we from getting a big data solution mm. where you can just plug in 500 hours of a podcast and it can just start to babble about, well, about tall ships and, uh, and lemmings? You know, I've been saying that for close to a decade that the first truly AI voices will be podcasters. Because who else has this amount of free of, time? Well, of record, uh, who else has created this body of casual conversation, right? You don't want an AI that's based on uh, Peter Jennings because it will sound stilted and all it will ever want to talk about is the news. Whereas you and I 
talking about anything. AIs of us talking will be so easy. It'll just be like, oh yeah, those guys. I never knew what their show was about before and now I really don't know what it's about. And now I still don't, but we can just sit back. Yeah. Here's what I do. I put both hands behind my head like this. My elbows are out. I see it. And I just kind of lean back to convey my sense of ease and relaxation. Mm -hmm. You know, Roger Ebert did that when he could no longer speak. They had so much of his voice. They didn't create an Ebert AI that would review movies angrily. They would now. (laughs) Today they could, but they did have all the phonemes so they could create a new way for him to talk without sounding like Stephen Hawking. Oh, they just used his yeah. own voice. Yeah, because oh, they had, they had, you know, because he was essentially the first podcaster. Yeah, you know, sure. He and Cisco, except they, um, they weren't chummy. They were more like a podcast where the two people don't get along. Yeah, not like this one. Like well, two we, close pals. Let's not reveal which podcasts we know of where the principals hate each other. Yeah, there are not none. <laughs> it's true. <There's laughs> a, there is a positive number of these shows. <laughs> well. You know, one of the things that makes Omnibus great is that you often don't know what the show is, even if you've looked at the title in advance. I sure don't, because I didn't look at the title, and I just said it. Yeah, sometimes... I'm already an AI. I'm not actually... I don't actually have sentience when I'm doing the fourth show of the day. Sometimes it's 40, 50 minutes into the show before it's clear what we're talking about. Are we doing that today? Beats me. (laughs) You'd be the last (laughs) one to know. (laughs) Um, You know, we do... uh, We do... Shows periodically on eccentrics um, we, uh, and uh, mystics. We do shows quite often on uh, the ins and outs of Pacific Northwest or Western towns, because that's our these are our stomping grounds. Western United States towns. At least this one gets us out of the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, it's not a but just barely. It's not a Yakima eccentric. If uh, if you were drawing the maps. For the breakaway republic of Ecotopia slash Cascadia, yeah, would you include the Bay Area, or well, would yeah, you stop I mean, short of it? Well, I mean, what are what are we? So we're we're saying absolutely no L.A. Right? How could it be? Well, I mean, could, would you make common cause with L.A.? Well, I mean, if you're talking about a, if you're talking about a civil war scenario, if we're just going on house districts here, you can exactly see where the colors end yeah and we're going to end up getting a chile-like strip all along the west coast the problem um, is two things one we don't like those people that have anything to in common with well them. no we do the hollywood people at least but the problem is all of their water is controlled by red states and so the red states would immediately do that as one damn thing and they'd and they'd all want our water yeah they'd they'd block the water from flowing down into southern california and then there'd be you couldn't live in southern you couldn't live in L.A. No, everybody there has bottled water. I've seen it. And then they'd all come up here. So where would the capital of Cascadia be? This is salient to the episode, by the way. Where would you put the capital? We want the capital in the Northwest. Eugene. Wow. Can you imagine? <laughs> it actually has the vibe already. I know, right? It, still lots of uh, lots of available real estate in the Central Core to build all your new... Um, EU-style buildings, you know, the International Court of Justice that Cascadia would have to we could, execute whalers. We could just put it in Salem. There's already a building there. But I, Oh, yeah, it's true. They won't need their state capital. Right. It should be Salem. Yeah. It should not be Olympia. Did no. you know Olympia, like if you go in population order, Olympia is maybe the like 17th most populous city in Washington. No. no o- yes, no other U.S. state has a state capital so dwarfed by the other cities in its in its state. The problem with Olympia is that it is not located in a geographical 
setting that is conducive to a city. It is not. It and, is. And Slater Kinney is going to be lobbying for them to get the capital. Olympia is the 23rd largest, most populous city in Washington You're State. You're kidding me. No. What's the 22nd? It's betw- it comes after Richland, Shoreline, and it's right ahead of Burien. Burien is really coming up fast. What? Burien is a, almost a, a state. I live very close to Burien. Burien is almost the size of Olympia. The thing is, Olympia is a place where someone pulled a rowboat up on the shore. And said, here, here in this marsh. And even barely that, I think. But pulled a rowboat up on the shore because they needed to to uh, to go number two, and then they wow. were like, "Uh," and then the boat sank because they were that because it ran up on some gooey ducks. And they're like, "We'll keep the outhouse here in Lacey. Yeah. Uh, let's go a mile inland and build the state capital." I mean, I'm sorry, Olympia, but in every other state, it's like a top five or a top ten city that's yeah. the state capital. In Washington, number twenty. 20- 24. I didn't know there were 24 towns in Washington. Well, the funny thing is, like, number nine is Spokane Valley. It's it's all oh, yeah. suburbs. Well, sure. Yeah, so Spokane that, Valley. that's what you get. Well, this is a show about um, not just a San Francisco eccentric, but, but I think, uh, you know, an eccentric, a world-class eccentric. This, this show was a suggestion of a longtime listener. Michael. Michael, uh, who gives at the washing bear level. That's correct. Um, suggested uh, Emperor Norton. Membership hath its privileges. He also had a couple other good ideas. Like I've almost, well, this idea is so good we already did it, the Phoebus cartel. Yeah. But Gideon Bibles, I've almost, I've done show, uh, I've almost put in the omnibus many a time. Well, they're, they're, it's not too late. Michael's going to get, I think, some double bang for his buck. A little bit of free ones. The, the thing about Emperor Norton uh, uh, that appealed to me is that there but for the grace of God go I. Do you feel like you're you were close to being the Emperor Norton of Seattle? I am one hair's breadth from minting your own money. Basically just casting myself off from reality just enough um that I, that I would I would take some of his uh take some of his precepts and 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 run with them. Do you think Emperor Norton really to what degree was he all there? I guess you should tell the story your own way. But I've often, just as an outside observer, a casual uh, knower of his story, I've often wondered, was this a calculated idea? Because if so, it's a pretty good one. Or did he actually think he was some type of a Augustus equivalent? Well, I don't know if you can separate Emperor Norton from the 19th century. I mean, you can't. He would die. He lived within it. Time travel is impossible. But you know the nineteenth century allowed for many uh many things. The twentieth century did too. It's a lot harder, I think now to geographically relocate and reinvent because everywhere you go, your credit score follows you, yeah, and people just look you up on look you up on Google, look you up on LinkedIn yeah look look you up on LinkedIn. My picture on LinkedIn for a long time was me standing between me standing between Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Did you Photoshop yourself? No, no. I went to a Kiss show and and uh, uh, my friend and they do photo ops in between songs. Not between songs. Every Kiss Army member, hold up your uh, induction papers. My friend was a uh, uh, knew their uh, their tour manager, and so we got all these privileges that Kiss fans have to pay thousands of dollars for, including a pre-show acoustic show where they're not in makeup and they come out to this group of. 20 people and play Wait, are they like spinal tap they come out and do a fake folk number first but, but not out they they do this in their dressing room and there's like 20 to 30 people that paid a lot of money to be there to see it 
That's fun. And then they go put their makeup on while you're sitting eating shrimp cocktail in this meet and greet area. And then they come back out, makeup on, and each one of the people gets their picture taken with Kiss. And then they go out and play their stadium show. So, Did you have makeup on? I didn't. And the thing about it is that my friend who was with me later on said he really wishes he'd taken off his shirt to get a picture taken with Kiss because, come on, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. What are you going to do? Not take off your shirt? I didn't take off my shirt either. I stood there like a dumb indie rocker with a shit-eating grin on my face, like, <laughs> I'm standing here with Kiss. It's better. Yeah, but later on, you kind of wish that you'd done something, you know, cool, because they're Kiss. They're doing something Kiss. Not that I think that they're particularly cool, but I used to use that picture as my LinkedIn photo, and then... Which one are you? Uh, that's right. <laughs> John Roderick, center. And then I ran for Seattle City Council, and my uh, my campaign team said, listen, people in politics use LinkedIn seriously, and if they go to your LinkedIn page and you're standing there with Kiss, they're they're going to think that you're a joke. Not realizing, yes, that's right. That's the whole story of me. Yes, I'm a joke. You cannot you can't you can't separate the one from the other. But I changed it to a picture of me wearing a, a tie, where I looked more like a I would citizen. Have, I would have left the picture, but like pixelized. Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons. Oh, that's smart. See, that would have been good. See, you're covered. Who are those guys? We'll never know. Malicious compliance. But you know, I've tried many times to establish myself as the as uh, like a civic leader here, and the problem is I'm just not a, a not accomplished enough, and b you know I have no I have no uh, family wealth. I have no real credentials of any kind. Did Norton though? Well. In fact, that's the story. He's a legacy hire? That's the story we're going to tell. He was born in uh, in Englang. Huh. As we used to say here on the show before I got enough angry letters from people that insist I call it England. I think you told the actual story and it so horrified everyone that you had to stop saying it. <laughs> um, he was born in England in 1818. Wow. So very much, uh, very much a product of the um, Pre- Pride and Prejudice era. Of, that's what they called it. That's what they called it then. He was born, and his first words were, I'm a baby in the Pride and Prejudice era. But his father was a Chandler, and they moved to South Africa. If you can imagine uh, the type of adventurous family of 14 that moved to... Was South Africa recruiting Chandlers? I think. Well, it was, you know... It was darkest Africa. There were... <laughs> that's right. They needed candles. There, were, there was a lot of shipping... Uh, that docked in Cape Town, and uh, he was a ship's chandler. Oh, so it's certain- ships had their own onboard chandler, so they wouldn't have to just stock all the candles they would need. I mean, you had to have the wax, right? And the is he just killing whales and making candles out of them? Maybe he's ma- maybe ships chandlers are making candles specifically for shipping, With- but they're located on shore. Maybe it's an aromatherapy thing where they kind of pick the vibe of the day. They're like, today I think pine and cedar. You know, it's funny. I went through a phase where I was collecting candles. Don't ask why. I was about to ask why. You did. You phrased your... You, you could see your, the W forming. <laughs> you did. You put your face into a Y. Well, I'll tell you, because I was collecting candelabra, <laughs> and if you have more... It's true. Than, if you have more than a dozen candelabra, you you look dumb if they don't have candles you, in them. You know, when it comes to that, you need more candles than candelabra. That's right. You need a multiple of however, take your number of candelabra, call yes. it N, N. multiply by 10 or 12, or count the number of, of uh, holders on holders. each candelabrum. Right. Multiply 
N by H, and that's how many candles you need. It's easy math. You remember when my piano used to have, used to be covered with candles uh, and giant candelabra that where it looked like the Phantom of the Opera set. Yes. At one point, I, w- I, uh, I knew a gal that was an early adopter of the uh, the uh, proto OnlyFans uh, uh, e- economy. Suicide and, Girls, and she said it was between Suicide Girls and OnlyFans. It was a, it was the, you know the uh, the dawn of the cam girl era, and she said, "Listen, I need some candelabra to, you know, for one of my scenes, a colorful background, yeah, for like my set. Uh, can I borrow a couple of these candelabra?" And I said, "You can take as many as you want." And she took the two grandest that were like fourteen candles each candelabra these things you know they were the size of christmas trees she took those and and then you know those were her backdrop and i never saw them. you never saw them again except online (laughs) (laughs) i'm not online so i I never didn't see them there but no while i was while i was uh, collecting candles i found in my mother's things because she used to run the computers for the alaska pipeline all right a collection of black candles that had been made out of the waxy oil that came out of the oil uh, wells of the North Slope. Was this like a, a Christmas gift to all the staff at yeah, one point? Yeah, something like that. That uh, she obviously didn't. She didn't burn. Does it smell she like? Just put them in a box. Well, I didn't want to burn them either. They seemed like real collectors' items because you know the the plus they're going to smell like a gas station. Well, there it is. I mean, I don't know if they would. They don't. If you put them under your nose, they don't. Hmm. You know, oil as it comes out of the ground, crude oil is very waxy. It's true, and I'm sure they got rid of all the volatile stuff that Probably. would smell and just or, left or it, explode. Just left the gunk. But somewhere in a box around here, I still have some, uh, some cr- like Prudhoe Bay crude oil candles that probably, I mean, probably whale oil candles smell, what do they smell like? Whales? No. Mm, I'm going to say we need to ask a ship's chandler like the father of Emperor Norton the first. Yeah. He was born jo- uh, Joshua Abraham Norton. He was, he's uh, from a family of English Jews and grew up in Cape Town. Um, his father was successful in the chandlery business. They had 12 kids. And uh, at some point... Think in, how many candles you have to sell to afford 12 kids. I know, 12 kids. But at the time, you know, you could just feed them candles. That you, was the style of the It was the Lord of the Flies. People had so many kids that it just turned into Lord of the Flies. The older kids took care of the younger ones or didn't. <laughs> Ken, you know, normally you and I banter uh, through our advertisements, but this time... I want you to just sit down and shut up while I tell you about Shopify. Shopify is more than a store. Connect with your customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether your thing is vintage teas or recipes for ghee, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. Now, I know you want to interrupt me, Ken, but wait. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your vibe. Discover new customers and grow the following that keeps them coming back. Shopify has all the sales channels sorted, so your business keeps growing. From an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. Even across all social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free libraries full of educational content, Shopify's got you every step of the way. It's how every minute new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify, and you will too. Ken, wait, 
Before you interject, Shopify makes selling simple so you can put yourself and your ideas out there. Whether your thing is making ebooks or earnings, <laughs> whether your thing is making ebooks or earrings, Shopify makes your success possible. When you're ready to launch your thing into the spotlight, Ken, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform backing millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Go on, Ken. Try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. This is possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash omnibus, all lowercase omnibus. Ken, go to shopify.com slash omnibus, all lowercase, to start selling online now. That's shopify.com slash omnibus. In his mid-20s, Joshua did not... um, There's a lot of confusion around the story and there are a lot of fans of emperor norton uh, and were in his time and were in the immediate aftermath who tried to piece together the story and so there's quite a bit of dispute certain facts have been established but there's a lot that is did he try to make it an enigma for his mystique uh i think less that than um than they're just you know records were incomplete Mm -hmm. and at a certain point is he or is he not? It's not is he or is he not telling the truth. It's does he does he or does he not remember the truth? But he left what is known is he left Cape Town in 1845. So he would have been 25 years old and sailed uh, to Liverpool, leaving his family behind. It was only a, a few years later that uh, both of his parents. And his two brothers all died, and uh, he and the, I think the rest of his siblings were sisters. So nine sisters. The family had no means of support. It's not clear because part of his origin story is that he arrived when he eventually arrived in San Francisco. Now, a handful of years later, that he arrived with money. Some say a considerable nest egg, which would have come from his father's chandlery, if if nothing else. There's no there's no story of him being like a tremendous entrepreneur on his own, or indeed having a job. But able to travel from uh, from Cape Town to Liverpool in 1845, and then uh, or in 1846, and then to Boston from Liverpool, uh, and then three and a half years go by where he is somewhere between Boston and San Francisco. And do you know what's between Boston and San Francisco in 1849? Mm, Cowboys? No, Rio de Janeiro and Valparaiso, because this is a sailing ship era. He didn't didn't take a train. Mm -mm. So there's there's speculation that he he, uh, whiled away that three and a half years perhaps making money in the various speculative trades. Rubber and copper and whatever else was being extracted from South America back then by its imperialist impressors. That's right. Uh, and he, This is the version of the story that's there you compatible, go. compatible with Marxism. Marxism. Where's the sign? Where's the oh, sign? Here it is, right? Did, did the revolutionary steal it? Compatible with Marxism. I want to go to an actual protest and hold that up. Compatible with Marxism. The, the writing is... It's, it's stitched. It's it's, it's cross stitched, and it's very small. Yeah, it would have been hard. 
I feel like I'll look like a huge protester with that little tiny sign. People will be like, that guy's enormous. Well, the issue— He dwarfs that thing. The issue is that the people standing behind you would see the sign as saying not compatible with Marxism. But I guess that's just as equally uh, equally a good critique of a of a march. I would please everyone. I would stand in front of the angry cops holding the not compatible with Marxism sign, and they'd give me a big salute and let me ride in their Punisher trucks. But then the, the people behind, the lefties behind me would see the compatible with Marxism sign, and they'd be like, this, yeah. this guy's down with the movement. The thing is, there's nothing more Marxist than to critique the Marxist protest from within. Mm. Huh? You could also just cover up the knot with a post-it. Anyway, uh, Josh Norton, uh, it's hard to know which is true because the records in South Africa show that his parents were insolvent at the time of their deaths. Hmm. But But, he he took all their money. Well, it's or or inherited. Maybe they weren't. Um, Maybe that that was just a tax dodge. Uh, His older brothers were also dead. So if there was money to inherit, he would have done so. Is there any but, chance that he just like took the money and ran? Possible. Possible. Impossible. I don't want to... As they would say in South America. Ma- I don't want to malign the dead. Uh, but he did arrive in San Francisco in uh, the, the uh, autumn of 1849. And you know what else was happening in San Francisco in 1849? Well, there was gold in them, our hills. That's right. The minor 49ers. And it was a big booming town at the time. Do you think that's why he went? Uh, I think the I think the energy was very much he's in, in San Francisco. He's in Valparaiso, and he's like, "This scene used to be so cool, and now it's dead." And somebody's like, "You got to go to San Francisco, man." He's not even thirty years old, so he's still he's still living his life. He's still in the prime of his life. He can work. Um, he can put flowers in his hair and go to San Francisco. That's what he did, and he got to San Francisco. Some say with as much as forty thousand dollars. I mean, that's got to be in, getting close to a million in, in mid-19th century money. $49, I think it is. Um, and so he has done something along the way, something he never copped to, and it's never clear whether that 40000 was real or not. But it, what is clear is by 1852, he had established himself in San Francisco as a prominent citizen, a uh, real estate investor, a um, commodities trader. He was uh, like a civic, you know, uh, butterfly. He went to all the events. He was he all was the parties. He was he went to all the parties. He went. He was a um, he was a big fan, like a, a f- cultural fan. Uh, if there was a speech, if there was a he's a patron of the arts. An event. There you go, patron of the arts. And he had built a company. Uh, the Josh Norton and Co. Uh, that was worth well, the, the the records show a quarter of a million dollars in eighteen fifty money. Doing what? Multiple millions, real estate, yeah. and you know San Francisco's booming. So commodities trading would have been like they said about the gold rush in Alaska. The people that got rich were the people that sold the picks and shovels, not anybody that actually was up there to get the gold. Yeah, the, I, I believe the same thing about Bitcoin. I'm selling graphics cards. There you go. NFTs of of Ken Jennings. Um, you know, the when you when you muck around in your mashed potatoes at dinner and take a picture of it. And no, I'm selling the tools used to get your bitcoins. What are those? Graphics cards. Do, oh, for your computer yeah, doors. You need. I see. 
I guess not graphics cards, but you need pro- you need microprocessors. Yes, yeah, you need fans. You're the guy that's selling the fans. That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. That's why there's still a Filson company, and there's not because um, of all the gold rushes there uh, supply yeah, for all the all the woolly coats that that uh, they sent up to the to the miners. That's right. Global warming's going to kill off Filson, but he oof no. They're going to make successively less and less woolly coats. Yeah, all that business is going to go back to the Hudson Bay Company. Yeah, and northward. Uh, but then Josh Norton makes a bad gamble at the uh, in eighteen fifty two. There's a famine in China. We've heard about these before, but this was not part of a great leap forward. This was just this one's not Mao's fault. He has an alibi. Yeah, this was just bad bad times. The rice crop. Um, collapses in China and the Chinese uh, eliminate the export of rice for the year. No, we're not sending any rice out. This is unlike the Russians during the Ukrainian famine or the <laughs> Romanians during the Romanian famines. They ate first. This is they, they said, we're reserving our rice for China and not sending any out. So All rice reserved. All rice reserved. It's a pun. Go on. So the phrase would be all rights reserved. Oh, I see. Now the word rice sounds not unlike the word rights. All rice reserved. See, isn't that funny now that I explained it? Mm. Yeah, ish. Um, what that caused, the rice export uh, ban caused a sudden, if you can imagine, spike in the price of rice. I ca- that's exactly what I would expect. Spike and in I, the price of and rice. And I'm not even an economist. Rice went from four cents a pound to 36 cents a pound. Wow. And it seemed like uh, this was going to be a tough year for rice. But then someone comes to Josh and says, hey, buddy, psst, have I got a deal for you? There happens to be a shipment of Peruvian rice. Psst. He's saying out of the side of his mouth. A shipment of Peruvian, of Peruvian rice. rice arriving in port tomorrow. No, don't look. Don't look over there. <laughs> I'll sell you the Peruvian rice for 12 cents a pound. Mm-hmm. Arbitrage opportunity. And then you turn around and sell it for 36 cents a pound. Everybody gets rich. See? <laughs> He's turning into Edward G. Robinson. I see. So, uh, Josh Norton, compatible with capitalism, not at all compatible with Marxism, he says, yeah, this is a good deal. He puts $2,000 down and signs a contract to pay the remainder of $23,000 for this enormous shipment of Peruvian rice. Mm-hmm. He's going to corner the rice market. He's the Howard Hunt of San Francisco rice. He's going to gouge just poor rice pudding lovers like myself. That's right. All the people that were used to paying four cents a pound for rice, he's going to charge them, you know, 900% more. People are eating their sweet and sour pork over spaghetti. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately for Josh Norton, uh-oh. Was the rice full of weevils? No. After he uh, after he signs this deal, the ship of rice comes in. Pretty good rice. The next day, another ship from Peru full of rice. Oh. And over the course of the next week or two. Rice's crater. Multiple ships of Peruvian rice. Some of them carrying better Peruvian rice. I like how well the Peruvians come off in this story. Yeah. They re- they really saw a market need and they rushed to address it. They did. They were like, you know who's got rice? Yeah, a bunch of rice. 
Peru. Peru. We also have corn, so we can send you our rice. And they probably have a bunch of people starving in the mountains, too, but they're not like China. They're just <laughs> exactly. like, yeah, who cares? Send it on. So the price of rice craters, and uh, Josh Norton is left holding the bag, literally the bag of rice. That uh, he, he can't sell. He unfortunately does not do the um, does not do the Dr. Dre thing, where he says, "You know what? I got uh, I got my butt handed to me in this deal. I'm just going to pay my debts and dust dust off my jacket and get back to work. Dirt he, off my shoulder." He feels like he got ripped off by old Mister Edward G. Robinson telling him about this Peru deal, mm. and he tries to fight the contract says no the the rice was bad no and he spends a couple of years uh wasting everybody's time and money and the, finally the california supreme court says no you got to pay your debts and he does and is by all counts ruined oh now if his company was worth $250,000 the year before or two yeah. two and a half three years before it's a lot of legal fees yeah a lot uh, a lot had to happen for him to go completely bankrupt but what ended up happening is that his many property holdings were sold, um, you know, liens were put on them and they were sold by the court in order to pay his debts. Do you think he just hated rice for the rest of his life? Can't imagine. So I mean, his friends would be like, hey, let's go to dinner. What do you, what do you want? Can I, you want a risotto? No! How, uh, the, considering how bitter I am about even much smaller slights and how I refuse to watch certain television shows or buy certain brands of tennis shoes just based on how somebody treated me in a mall one time. Um, I can't imagine that he would ever happily sit down to a big bowl of rice. If that ever happens to me, I hope it's a food I already dislike. I hope, I, oh. I hope somebody comes up to me and is like, hey, buddy, I've got a shipment of real mealy pears <laughs> that I want you to put your life savings in. Hey, John, we've got olive-flavored potatoes. potatoes. <laughs> You can corner the market. The thing is, neither you nor I would seek to corner a market in no. order to get rich on the backs of other people's misfortune. No, that, it's not compatible with capitalism or Marxism to no. corner a market. It's just a drag. Well, so by 1856, he is bankrupt, although in the process, in the time that he's fighting this uh, this. Uh, contract mm -hmm. he joins the local masonic lodge and the interesting about the thing about the masons is that there's only one interesting thing about the masons no there are a lot of interesting things about the masons i think it's bottomless but one of the interesting things about the masons is that they were you know we think of them now as kind of a um, anachronistic old-fashioned fraternal organization that wears aprons yeah but at the Fusty. time of course, they were very progressive, free-thinking organization. They were anti-racist. They were, in a way, kind of— The Masons were doing the work. They were, they were anti-religion in the sense that they were trying to create a more enlightened world uh, governed by principle and, um, and you know, free thought— and so although he was Jewish and would have been excluded from a lot of uh, civic institutions on that ground, although I, he, wasn't a, he wasn't religiously observant, uh, he was welcomed into the Masons, and the Masons were, you know, established as a kind of league of city fathers. Um, and so he tried a couple of different 
last ditch, uh, you know, stabs at regaining some of his public prominence and his wealth. He ran for city tax collector and lost. He announced his candidacy for Congress, but didn't really follow through. And uh, by 1859, was living in a boarding house. 41 years old, rock bottom. And had just sort of, yeah, lost it all. Although still a very sort of articulate and uh, personable, grandiose kind of personality, had not lost his, uh, the goodwill of the citizens of San Francisco. And it seems like he, if he's still a fun guy to talk to, he's not embittered, I guess, by his experience. Seems not to have been. Huh. Um, but he was very interested in the news of the day. So in 1860, the population of San Francisco was 50,000 people. Now that's more than the city of Olympia. As we know, that's about the size of Olympia and Burien. Right. Um, But still a small town and still a town where you could be a notable citizen or someone with notoriety and be well-known throughout the town. It's funny. It's it's also the biggest city regionally. Yeah, right. Or on the whole West Coast. For like a thousand miles around, maybe. (laughs) 50,000 people. 50,000 people. And and a town that was well-known throughout the world as a kind of libertine, uh, you know, modern town full of adventure. This was where people went to to sow their wild oats, but also, you know, it was – we've done enough shows on 19th century San Francisco. Right. Uh, and to, the West in general. Yeah, to know that this was where you went if you were going to gamble on a mine, if you were going to start a bank – but it's bummer to go. It's a bummer to go there and then lose it all and have to start over in your forties. Lose it all. Yeah, it's always a bummer to have to start over in your forties. Let alone like me having to start over, starting now. Uh, in, in your fifties, you could get an OnlyFans. It's not too late. You know, people have suggested that. Have I mentioned that? I can't remember if we were talking about it on recording or not. Yeah, that I should start an OnlyFans. But you just read Melville or something. Yeah, just sit and and read. Uh, read you know, read books that the that the futurelings send us, just read them out loud. You're just reading Churchill speeches out loud to no one. There I like are, it. There are an awful lot more OnlyFanses than there are successful OnlyFanses, just like podcasts. Just maybe, like anything. Maybe I should stick with what I know. In 1859, Joshua Norton sends what is effectively a manifesto to the local newspapers. Um, Basically saying, it's not a Unabomber manifesto. It's more of a, things have gone drastically wrong. We need to, um, you know, Congress is not functioning. The city of San Francisco needs to take better Mm. care of its roads and its people. Uh, There should be a... Sounds like I announced my candidacy. There should be a seven-sided lighthouse full of dreams uh, built over here. You know, it's like a... Sounds like he's starting a podcast. He's got a lot of plans. And he sends it to the newspaper and they publish it. Um, <laughs> That's the great thing about the, 20, the 19th century. You know, because why not, right? Let's fill some column inches. People go, oh, well done, well done. So the manifesto actually it ran in the San Francisco Daily Evening Bulletin. And it ran as a paid ad. It's unclear to me how he paid for <laughs> his manifesto to run. Uh, but a couple of months later in September. You got a budget for yourself. You got a... You know, self-care. That's right. 
That's right. And, and even you, if times are tight, you got to put your manifesto on the paper. I don't know if you've noticed this on Twitter, but all of a sudden there were months went by or weeks at least where there were no ads all of a sudden. And now last couple of days, my feed has been inundated with ads that are just regular people like, Hey, follow me, uh, <laughs> you know, click on follow and, uh, Hang out. That's the sign of a healthy platform. (laughs) Somebody with 60 followers that's like, I can pay 70 cents a click. Uh, He brings a letter to the the bulletin, the San Francisco Daily Evening Bulletin, uh, that reads as follows. Uh, And this is going to be, this is a preview of my OnlyFans. This is the kind of content you'll get, folks, when you subscribe to the Roderick OnlyFans. And he's British, right? So, Oh, yeah. Can you do a South African accent? At the preemptory request and desire, well, I'm just going to do like a, whatever that accent is. Not, it's not South African. At the preemptory request and desire of a large majority of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton, formerly of Algoa Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and now for the last nine years and ten months past of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself emperor of these United States, and in virtue of the authority thereby vested in me, do hereby order and direct the representatives of the different states of the Union to assemble in musical hall of this city on the first day of February next. He's calling an imperial convention. He is calling a convention. He's saying representatives of the American states come to San Francisco on the first day of February, then and there to make such alterations in the existing laws of the Union as may ameliorate the evils under which the country is laboring and thereby cause confidence to exist, both at home and abroad, in our stability and integrity, signed Norton I, Emperor of the United States. Norton the First. Norton the First. Is it, it's where I they have use no idea what that accent was. It's, it's, totally the, <laughs> it's a little bit like the, uh, the royal pronunciation on the crown. Mm-hmm. When they're they're talking it's, 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 it's. some, so why does he choose his last name? Shouldn't he be Joshua the first? <laughs> well, he, he's really um, turning a corner in uh, in regnal names. That's right. He's, by saying it's going to be my surname, he's making it up as he goes. Um, emperor Norton, I think Norton is maybe a uh, like a cooler sounding name for an emperor than Emperor Josh. I guess that's true. Today yeah. it's 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 colored by the honeymooners, right? Norton. Norton. Boom! But back then, it was the coolest sounding name. Uh, you can imagine the San Francisco Daily Evening Bulletin, uh, starved for content, as all media outlets have always been, uh, reads this and goes, uh, yeah, we're going to run with this. This is hilarious. And uh, we're do, they, put- do, do they make a big thing out of it? Yeah, we're putting it in the evening edition. Um, it comes out, and immediately, uh, everybody in San Francisco just thinks it's adorable. Um, sure. They're like this guy. Am I right? He was already a well-known character. Um, and so the following day, by all accounts, as he walked the streets of San Francisco, people tipped their hats to him and said, you know, your highness, your highness emperor. Um, and it really empowered him. Now he's living in a boarding house at this time. It empowered him to then issue imperial decrees well, uh, which presumably he would have anyway. He's the emperor of the United States. That's right. What is his life if not issuing imperial decrees? And his first imperial decree is to abolish the Congress. Wow. Uh, because it's uh, because it's a corrupt in- institution. Um, and uh, and then makes preparations for this assembly in the Music Hall of San Francisco in February the following year. 
Unfortunately, and this is not included in the uh, the record of Emperor Norton as is disseminated by the Emperor Norton Society. Oh, he's got an official legacy. He does. The uh, My research indicated that the Music Hall of San Francisco actually burned down January 23rd. So the, what was the date shortly before? February 1st was the oh, day of his convocation. The week before. The week before the music hall burned to the ground. Perhaps his enemies on the court. This is what I, this is what the, we cannot know. Think of all the homeless representatives pouring in from all over this great land, uh, and they arrive at a steaming pile of ashes. What we, uh, what we know, of course, is that by 1860, uh, the United States was embroiled in, uh, Quite a, a lot of yeah. conflict. In the pre-Norton world, no civil wars. As soon as he becomes emperor, one civil war. Well, he is try- he's trying from his uh, lofty perch there in the city of San Francisco to avert war, and he thinks that the solution is to disband Congress, which he feels like is a dysfunctional organ. Do we know if he's abolitionist? Well, so as time goes on, we discover that Norton has, uh, he, he, he doesn't specify in his he actually commands the Army of the United States to disband the Congress mm. uh, at bayonet point. The Army does not uh, acknowledge his his mandate. Um, I think I would have heard about it if that had happened. Yeah, but he is very uh, he's against he's against both parties, uh, and I think what he's seeking is a middle ground. It's now, Ross Perot. Now later, it. Uh, his policies were astonishing, astonishing, astonishing. Really big show. His policies were astonishingly progressive for his time. He, um, one of his, his edicts or his, yeah, his imperial edicts, uh, stipulated that African Americans should be allowed to ride the streetcar and attend public school. Neither thing, c- common public policy for San Francisco in the 1860s. Wow, uh, in the uh, during the 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 big anti Chinese riots era yeah. of San Francisco, he actually confronted on the street uh, the leaders of the anti Chinese riots and uh, and said that he uh, you know he believed that the Chinese should be given voting rights and equal rights. He was in favor of American Indian incorporation into the city. Although, of course, what what was progressive then yeah. was always assimilationist, yeah. and um, looks a little paternalistic now. Yeah, the uh, Native Americans may not have wanted to settle down in East Bay. No, they wanted Alcatraz. We know that. But he did. Uh, he did speak and 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 uh, issue edicts in favor of women's voting rights, and he spent a lot of time talking about. This is where, I mean, he's, these all sound like my public platforms. He spent a lot of time walking around studying the infrastructure. And issuing edicts about like places where there are potholes and to re- repair the streets and so forth. This guy sounds like the best emperor America's ever had. One of the things that cannot be confirmed or denied is that that he said at one point um, that anyone who uses the word Frisco should be fined twenty five dollars. <laughs> now I'm against that. I'm a, I frequently call. I it think Frisco. it's very fun to antagonize. Yeah. Uh, Me too. Bay Area zones, and you know, there's this is the, there's a lot of revisionism now around the term Frisco, that it's actually a, a, a long standing blue collar term for the city. 
oh, and really? that to say that you're it's against snobby. Frisco is snobby and Ooh. and uh, tech yeah, well, or just like you know, middle class. Is uh, something I still have the same question I did uh, at the beginning of this entry. Go on. Is he has he lost his marbles, or is he like does he think he has any chance of of uh, dissolving the U.S. Congress, or does he think better? You know, any if you don't try, you're not. I mean, is he doing a bit? No one seems to care. Mm. The city of San Francisco, as colorful as it is, embraces him wholeheartedly. Perfect place for this. Um, the uh, the soldiers out at the Presidio uh, construct a uniform for him out <sighs> of uh, out of like hand me downs. Part uh, the uniform is sort of part Confederate, part Union. Yeah, it's got uh, epaulets and epaulets and and, uh, and crests I've and seen pictures. He looks like feathers. a doorman. <laughs> he looks amazing. He had a beaver hat with a big ostrich feather in it. Um, but everywhere he goes, the wonderful thing about it is that uh, although he has no money, he is feted everywhere he goes. He uh, attends. He never has to buy dinner in this town again. That's right. He still attends the opera and all of the public lectures. Uh, seats are reserved for him. Um, at one point, I mean, when when that's better than having money. It's pretty good. When Napoleon III installs Maximilian as the emperor of Mexico, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Emperor Norton declares himself the protector of Mexico because the this Habsburg intrusion is. Is, uh, yeah, and so get then, out of our hemisphere. Then all, everyone in San Francisco calls him now the emperor and protector of Mexico. I'm just realizing this is basically you. Yeah, you you can you also get tickets to anything you want in town without ever paying a cent. I'm afraid so. And people do sort of ceremonially salute me and bow, even though it's not clear whether it's mocking. They even gave you a faux naval uniform at one point. And also, it's not clear whether I'm insane or not. <laughs> um, so. He doesn't seem troubled by the fact that a lot of his edicts aren't implemented. Uh, he just sort of moves on. Um, that's good advice. Yeah, he's the Dr. Dre of uh, 19th century San Francisco. Yeah, that's right. You know, focus on focus on the now. Focus on the future. I don't want to get too woo, but focus on the now. You know. Yeah. T- today is a gift. Yeah, that's why they call it the present. They weren't sure what to call it, wow. and then they were like. Well, you know, it's such a gift. Why don't we look for a synonym for gift? And that's why they call it the present. I wish I had a bell right now because I would just, I would ring it 108 times. Um, now, during this period, another uh, a, a American luminary is also out in the West trying to make his fortune and make a name for himself. Charles Manson. Uh, no, Samuel Clemens. Ah, right. You know, Samuel Clemens, in the same way that uh, that we think of Colonel Sanders as being a Kentuckian when really he was from Indiana, we always think of Samuel Clemens as a, uh, you know, this icon of the Mississippi and Southern. But, you know, during the, during the Civil War, he was out in Nevada and San Francisco what, working as a journalist and trying to make money in the silver mines. That seems smarter. And so he... He started working at a at a local San Francisco paper called The Morning Call as just like a young buck reporter that got all the bad jobs. The offices of The Morning Call were just a few doors down from the boarding house where Emperor Norton lived. And Sam Clemens 
obviously, right, adored him and ended up uh, putting him in Huckleberry Finn as the character, the king. Oh, yeah, the king and the duke, the yeah. self-proclaimed. That's, that's right. That's interesting. That's Emperor Norton. Um, so he, he arrived to such an extent that the, that the, the census, uh, when the census came through San Francisco, they actually recorded him with the job title emperor. Um, so he was formally recognized by the United States census as the emperor of San Francisco. And he became a, a figure in the national news. People in, in, uh, in New York city would refer to the emperor of San Francisco, or I'm sorry, the emperor of the United States residing in San Francisco. He was a, he was, uh, who, who's a comparable, I mean, these days there are so many colorful clown like figures in American culture. It's almost a kind of job. Like to say like, who's the ridiculous person in America that everybody talks about n- knowing full well that he's, I mean, if you, if you're having the, does he know what he's doing discussions? It might be Kanye West. Right. Or but former it, President Donald Trump. Right. But if you're thinking of something, kind of a more benevolent um, space case, you know, it's, I don't know what it is. It's Flavor Flav or it's... Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, but they're entertainers. They're they're less like claiming to be um, prophets. Most of the time, if someone claims to be a prophet in the United States, we burn their house down and, and uh, bury them in a shallow hole. He's not a prophet, is he? He's a political figure. Yeah. Um, Joe Rogan? Okay. <laughs> he's, the, he's Emperor Rogan the first. So, as part of the evidence that he is not crazy, he actually starts printing his own script. Um, he prints... A thing that only sane people do. He prints money. <laughs> Famously, sane people go home and print their own money. And then he goes and uses the money... You know, or sells it uh, with uh, sells it as like a savings like a, bond. Yeah, and I bet people are buying just to have a souvenir. People buy it, and in fact, now if you can find it, you know, online, it's it's. it's oh, is that true? Totally worth you know a ton of cash. It's the Bitcoin of the eighteen yeah. seventy. Uh, so it turns out it really did pay dividends over the last hundred and fifty years. You had to hold on, buy the dip. But people would honor his script uh, in restaurants. He. And the Masons, uh, you know, really embraced him as one of their own. This is all a Masonic conspiracy. And that's right. They're trying to put a Mason on the throne of the United States. He was arrested in 1867 by an overly ambitious police officer who was kind of just a, like a vigilante with a tin star, um, arrested for vagrancy and lunacy. (laughs) <laughs> and there was such an outcry in the city of San Francisco that the police chief released him. And thereafter, all police officers saluted him when he passed. Well, I'm so, sure nobody actually thought he was a danger to himself or others. Not so, a danger. Yeah. Um, he, throughout his tenure, wrote multiple mash letters to Queen Victoria, oh. suggesting that if the two of them married, they would unite the... You know, the, unite the hemispheres. Well, his title seemed to be kind of an imitation of hers. He adds protector of Mexico to mirror her and Empress of India or whatever her colonial titles were, right? Right, right. Um, but he also uh, 
he also would write letters to King Kamehameha V, <laughs> who at the time was still the sovereign of the Sandwich Islands, future Hawaii. Also mash notes? Future American state of Hawaii. No po- political uh, you know, missives. They exchanged letters back and forth so much so, King Kamehameha was so impressed with his edicts. If you read his edicts, they all sound eminently reasonable. Hmm. Um, he's not bonkers when he says that African-American children should be able to go to school, right? And, and they all had that kind of tenor, like, here's the problem and here's the solution. Well, the funny thing is he's actually very progressive on hot-button issues, but he's still being embraced. Nobody, right. Nobody's like, well, this guy's it. I mean, maybe because there's no threat of That's it actually thing. becoming policy. That's the thing. Well, he he was able to sneak in, uh, not sneak in, but he was able to say these things that uh, everyone could go, ha, 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 isn't he a nut? But he actually got a lot of these things published. And unfortunately, the uh, the newspapers started to publish articles under his byline uh, that were clearly written by others that were just comedy uh, they articles. Just, they just wanted to get sell copies. Yeah. And so he was furious at that and declared that the uh the daily so the Daily Alto was a newspaper that kept publishing these fictitious essays and it infuriated him so much that he declared the Pacific Appeal was the only newspaper that could carry his official uh, uh documents. Except no substitutes. And it in 1871, was a black-owned and operated newspaper in San Francisco. Wow. And only the Pacific Appeal could carry his proclamations, and he issued over the course of his uh, his reign over 250 proclamations. He's really keeping it real. He does. He's only publishing in the black papers. He keeps it real. To such an extent that when King Kamehameha had a falling out with the U.S. State Department, for obvious reasons, that we will discuss in our future Hawaii episode. King Kamehameha said, I will no longer deal with uh, the United States government. I will only recognize Emperor Norton as the sovereign of the United States, and I will only deal with him. He got recognized by a foreign potentate. He did. Wow. He did. Uh, So, sadly, one day on his way to a lecture at the California Academy of Sciences where you and I have performed yeah. a live omnibus. In Golden Gate Park. That's right. He was on his way to a lecture there when he uh, suddenly passed out and died oh, on no. the street. I'm glad that didn't happen to us when we were on our way there. Well, that's the thing. We didn't, we, we, we weren't walking there. This was the, this was 1880. Um, and there was a great outpouring of affection for him. An outpouring that was greatly exaggerated, I think. Uh, the newspapers reported it as the streets were lined with people when in fact it seems like, well, it's, you know, by lined with people, do you mean 30 people? Well, he's such a symbol of the city. You know, it's got to be, part of it is just kind of civic pride and, right. you know, San Francisco recognizes one of its own. Yeah, this was a character that uh, that was as, that San Francisco benefited from as yeah. much as he benefited from San Francisco. And he and he left quite a legacy. Um, he was buried in the Masonic Cemetery, but and oh, I forgot to say, the one of the things that he did as he walked around the city was he would he would anoint 
children that did, you know, that were kind to him as he walked around. Oh, he's like blessing them like yeah, the Pope? He, and that's where we get the phrase queen for a day. Because he would say, I hereby declare you queen for a day. And, you know, wow. tap little girls on the shoulder with his, with his walking stick or his saber. And that's where the, the idea of queen for a day came from. Anyway, he was buried in a Masonic cemetery, and right away he's, he's part of the lore of San Francisco. And people are trying to unravel his story, and he appears, you know, various books about him. He appears in, in the story of San Francisco. Um, and he becomes, you know, he appears in a book by Robert Louis Stevenson. He continues to be a sort of source of, of public fascination. He appears in Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bukowski wrote about him. And one of his pet projects, one of his big ideas, and he issued several proclamations to this effect, was that San Francisco needed to build a a suspension bridge from San Francisco to Oakland across the bay. Did people think this was crazy at the time? It was, well, how could they, you know, it was nuts. What are you talking about? Uh, Or a tunnel. A bridge or a tunnel. That's even more nuts. Um. And so, years later, when a bridge across the bay started to be discussed, of course, the WAGs, the same exact people who wanted uh, Louis Louis made the the Washington State song. It's just it's just print columnists who remember this stuff. Yeah, wanted the bridge to be called the Emperor Norton Memorial Bridge. Yes. Uh, of course, there were a lot of, you know fudges and sticks in the mud who uh who wanted no part of it the same exact people here in seattle who kept despite the many times we voted for a citywide monorail system kept finding reasons why there couldn't be one but the many times we voted against a special stadium for football kept deciding that there were lots of reasons that there should be one suddenly that got turned over um to this day the bridge is named for no one right well so then it was yeah, it's got the most boring name in the world, the Bay Bridge. Um, you can't disagree with that. The Golden Gate Bridge is great, and it's named after the body of water it crosses, the Golden Gate. But the Bay Bridge could be a lot of things. And one of the things it, well, that was suggested in recent years was that the bridge be named after Willie Brown, the former mayor of San Francisco. The thing is, they only ever want to name the western part of the bridge that you see from Treasure Island to the city. Oh, would it be... The other side the of the bridge, the Oakland part, would be uh, yeah, it's just something else. So there was a movement to to name the bridge after both. Will, as soon as people started agitating for Willie Brown, the uh, the Emperor Norton people came back out, new Emperor Norton people all the time, and said, "Let's name it after both. Can, why can't it be the Willie Brown and Emperor Norton Bay Bridge? Let's name it, and then we'll also name it after uh, you know the, uh, the Safeco." insurance company, the Emperor Norton, Willie Brown, and Geico Insurance Bridge. Uh, And that was, you know, that was a bridge too far, and all of the Willie Brown people backed off, and it's still called the Bay Bridge. No, The problem with that is you try try to add somebody's name to something like that, and nobody uses the new name. I mean, you know, half the people flying into Reagan still call it National... You know, the, Although, you know, the Evergreen Point floating bridge here in Seattle is actually yeah, the, the Rosalini Bridge. It's supposed bridge. to be the Rosalini yeah. Bridge. No one says that. Some of us every once in a while. Really? Yeah, there's a Rosalini out, faction. Out of respect. But I'll tell you, if it was named Emperor Norton Bridge, I bet people would would say it. Yeah. I mean, I still, I, I still say, well, nobody says West Edge. 
But I still say Hell's Kitchen, and I noticed they they stopped trying to call Hell's Kitchen whatever they were trying to call it, and uh, it's Hell's Kitchen again. In, they were trying like, to call it Upper like Soho in New York? or something. Yeah, yeah, they were trying to say uh, Clinton, Clinton, right? yeah, something like that. That's not going to work. Well, as a footnote, and and kind of it's a high level footnote in the 1960s, a man by the name of Jose Saria became a very prominent gay activist in San Francisco and was, in 61, the first openly gay candidate for public office in the United States when he ran for the City Board of Supervisors. Oh, wow. The same position that Harvey Milk later ran for. That's right. right. And what was funny at the time was there were, I think, six seats available on the Board of Supervisors. And right before the election, and he, you know, this was a, this was a very, uh, this, this was a national news Mm -hmm. that a gay candidate was running for this job. There were six seats and there were only five candidates and they only realized that, uh, that he was a shoe in to be on the board of supervisors. And in the last couple of days, right before the election, suddenly 34 new people declared their candidacy in order that Jose not be the first actual gay uh, board of supervisors. And then they burned down the music hall again. And then they burned it down. Well, Jose Soria ended up um, declaring himself the empress of San Francisco, Jose I, the widow Norton. Ah. Picking up the legacy. And... Jose was the founder of the imperial court system, which used to be an extremely prominent part of American gay culture. The imperial court um, was and is a, there is a, you know, a king and queen, the queen being a drag queen Mm -hmm. and the king being a leather daddy. And there's a whole court system, dukes and earls and Are there um, are there balls and stuff or is are, or is it just on paper? There are balls, there are there are there are uh, court assemblies. It's an enormous sort of subculture. Right. And alternate peerage. Yeah. And during a time before gay culture was out and accepted, it was it was a really prominent event on the on you know the kind of gay urban underculture mm-hmm. or subculture, uh, the it started in San Francisco, and then the second iteration of the international or the what at the time was the national court was in Portland. The third was in Seattle, yeah. and then the fourth was in Vancouver, and that's at which point it became an international court. When I first arrived in Seattle, and and my first job here was in a gay club, the imperial court events were. The, these phenomenal events. Did the, each city have its own court? Yeah. Okay. The pomp and circumstance that happened at these, because it was, you know, it was an election. Um, oh, I see. So people, you know, arrived and, and the, the various, you know, members of the courts and all their entourages. And then there was an emperor and an empress and they sat on thrones and there was dance. And it was when you could, you know, when drag and leather, when all the all the factions <laughs> right. of queer culture all united at one point, and of course there were naysayers too, but 
you know, it was, oh, it was, I, I remember those events so fondly. And those are a direct result of the, of Jose's inspiration that Emperor Norton could. He's a queer icon. And so he became sort of the inspiration for the imperial court system. Now there are 86 locations uh, around the country and the globe. Different cities that have their 86 own 86 different citizens, or cities that have different courts. Mm-hmm. You know, now that, that, that uh, queer culture isn't closeted. Right. Uh, we kind of ruined their fun by Yeah, like, what by happens is them. nobody cares anymore about, you know, these very campy traditions because everybody's married and living in the suburbs. But what happened was in, in uh, although Emperor Norton was buried in San Francisco, in the 30s, there was a, a big project that maybe we'll talk about on the omnibus one day where the city of San Francisco relocated all the cemeteries that were in the city because the city was growing and they couldn't have these big cemeteries. And so they reburied him out in daily city (laughs) and Jose Saria in the sixties acquired the burial plot next to emperor Norton. And when he died in 2013, he was interred next to Emperor Norton with a gravestone that matches, saying... Saying that he's the Empress, Empress the Jose. Empress, the Widow Norton. Ave at que vale. And that concludes Emperor Norton, entry 408.MT2221, certificate number 42631 in the omnibus. You can find us, you could have found us in our era at Omnibus Project, at Ken Jennings or at John Roderick on various social media platforms, some not yet born. Uh, you could email us at the omnibusproject at gmail.com. These are the emails that power our monthly addenda uh, entries that we enjoy doing and uh, enjoy putting on Patreon. Support the show at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. And even at the lowest level of support uh you can uh, you'll get a backlog of just dozens of our old addenda shows and a new one every month uh, you can send us physical uh items physical did i just say that weird let's get physical physical you can send them to i want to get physical p.o box 55744 shoreline washington 98155. We're still getting postcards every time. We're on the uh, mailing list of the Center for Land Use Interpretation yes. in Culver City, California, that wants us to know about their latest exhibit, which uh, opened in November, Offstream, on the Trail of Pumped Storage. And here's a, a beautiful picture on the postcard. Of, that does look like a big f- pump. A, 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 what is pumped storage? I don't even know what that means. Well, is it like be, water towers? Yeah, it's got to be water in reservoirs. Is pumped storage the name for a, I mean, not a gay club, but a... Uh, Willie and the pump storage are playing. <laughs> but a water tower? And then we have this other box I'm trying to open now. You, I should have done this in advance, but it's much more... No, it sounds good. Suspenseful. It's great all, radio. Yeah, all the production value here. Oh, I'm going to walk in this... I'm going to walk in the room. Okay, what do you got? <laughs> Oh, here's a box. Uh, what do we got? There's a note to John Roderick and Ken Jennings, even though your name is first. That seems likely. I'm going to open it. It's a thank you note from... I'm not sure I can read it. 
Jeff. Hey, Jeff. John, please enjoy. Oh, oh. This will give away what it is. Please to enjoy. Please to enjoy with your daughter. The Women of NASA Lego set. Oh, yay! Oh, no, wait. Did I lie? Oh, yes, oh. that's true. No, the Women of NASA Lego set it's is just for the you. booklet from the Women of NASA Lego set. No, I get one of those little um, metal punch-out uh, die-cut things that you put together in a model. Oh, I, those are cool. I've never actually put one together. Me I have a bunch either. at home. I have not ever done Do they one. work? I don't know. Tell us if they... Oh, this comes not only with Mae Jemison and Sally Ride, but with Margaret Hamilton. Uh, she must be an early... Uh, an early um, hidden figures type. She's she's got a stack of books, but also she's white. Mm-hmm. And Nancy Roman, pictured with a space telescope. She must be some satellite expert. I bet you're going to learn all about them when you and your daughter put together the Women of NASA Lego set. You know us. We love it. You love women. You love NASA. This combines both your interests. Uh, and look for your fellow futurelings. Online in 2023, they will all be on Facebook and Discord and wherever else the word Futurelings does not return a sad, empty search. Where would that be? Where would you look for Futurelings and not find anything? Um, Parlor. At a a clan meeting, yeah. (laughs) On Parlor. That's exactly right. And join us in 2023 for uh, our new uh, weekly omnibus, which will be much like this one, but less. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we wish you many goods and cheese and hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.